are never going to understand how critical this particular time in history is. We have $7.7 trillion worth of economic events that are going to hit America in the gut. This is An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun, President and CEO of Private Wealth Consultants, the free market voice, free market voice. of the U.S., enhancing and protecting private wealth. Gary Rathbun has over 30 years of experience in making the best choices for you to keep more of what you earn. It's life, liberty, and the pursuit of self-reliance. An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. This is Greetings and welcome again to An Economy One. I am your host, Gary Rathman. It's been an interesting week, huh? Interesting week. We'll uh, got a lot of things to cover tonight, and we got a great guest uh, joining me a little bit later in the show. I'll, I'll tell you about it. In the meantime, our website, aneconomyofone.com, aneconomyofone.com, as is our Facebook. Go to Facebook and like us, if you like, at uh, An Economy of One on Facebook. Um, before I get into, uh, some of the other stuff this week, I'll talk about the, uh, uh, President Obama's State of the Union address and, and stuff like that a little later. And the bottom of the hour, John Tamney, John Tamney, uh, author of the book, Popular Economics, economic, uh, editor for Forbes and RealClearMarkets.com be joining me and, uh, you won't want to miss that. But, you know, the market is, uh. Having an interesting year so far, uh, wild swings, a lot of volatility, a lot of negativeness in the market, and the, most of the pundits out there, most of the the people that comment on that are attributing it to China. China's economy is going to have a hard landing, as the economic phrase goes, and I, I wanted to address that a little bit because it's not all China in my mind. Certainly China is going through some tough times. They're essentially experiencing what we experienced in 2008. Uh, they got credit issues over there, uh, debt to equity issues. Uh, their currency is is collapsing and they're sending all kinds of mixed signals. One day they uh, depeg their currency from the American dollar. The next day, uh, they start supporting it. The day later, they let it weaken. So it's all over the place. And that's that's typical of a collectivist state. You got a, uh, a guy in charge clear at the top and a committee and everybody afraid to tell the truth to people above them for fear they'll they'll lose their head, uh, literally. And uh, so it's causing a lot of a lot of ripple effect uh, around the globe. There's 7% uh, growth in GDP each year for the last several years is coming to an abrupt end. And there are many who say, me included, that that 7% is is cooking the books. They, uh, they're more likely running at somewhere between 1% and 3% uh, growth in the GDP. So it's not all that it seems. And and this reinforces what I've been telling people that I'm not concerned uh, about China taking over the world. They are the second largest economy, second by a long ways. They're nowhere near the size of our economy. A few weeks ago, maybe a month ago, 
the IMF said that uh, they would allow the yuan, the Chinese currency, to be part of the special drawing rights. Everybody felt that was the end of the dollar's dominance in the world, uh, no longer going to be the world's reserve currency. Well, we see what's happening. The numbers just aren't holding up. Uh, they've been uh, uh, less than honest about their numbers for quite a long time, and the dollar keeps getting stronger. Now, the movement in our market is kind of a circle, kind of a circle. They, they tie it to China, which we've just talked about. They tie it to oil. Oil is is uh, still hanging down there in, in non-profitable levels. And guys like me tie it also to the dollar. As the dollar gets stronger, oil gets cheaper. Virtually all oil around the world is traded in dollars. So as the dollar gets stronger, you need fewer of those dollars to buy a barrel of oil. And consequently, oil appears to be cheaper. Now, this week was the first week that we started exporting crude oil. Really kind of a non-event. Um, not a big deal in the overall scheme of things. I think it will help America long term, but uh, not a big deal for all the political uh, hoopla around it. But uh, the dollar is the key, I believe. Strength of the dollar. Now, that being said, as monetary policy comes out of the Fed, as uh, regulatory policy comes out of the government, they're doing everything they can to screw up the economy in the name of uh, helping the economy, and we'll touch a little bit more on that later. But one of the one of the indicators, one of the things that you need to become familiar with is kind of an archaic term. Nobody talks about it much anymore. It's called the velocity of money. Now, the velocity of money, kind of difficult to understand or define, but once you start thinking about it, it makes a lot of sense. Now, the Federal Reserve, God love them in their clarity, define the velocity of money as the ratio of nominal GDP, gross domestic product, to a measure of the money supply, either M1 or M2. And that, that's, that's a little complex to understand. The better way to understand it is the number of times $1 is used to purchase final goods or services in relation to the GDP. In other words, how, how many times does a dollar turn over in a given period of time? This indicator, the velocity, is, is mainly measured, measured in... Uh, uh, 12 month intervals, how many times does that dollar turn over during that year? Currently, the velocity of money is about 1.49, about one and a half times it turns over in a year compared to the GDP. Now, that's the lowest velocity ever, ever recorded. From 1960 to 1990, 30 year period there. The velocity of money averaged between 1.7 and 1.9, and in 1997, velocity was 2.2. So that that's a 
that's a big velocity way, way back in the Stone Age when I went to to college. Velocity of money was considered very, very good at 1.7, 1.8, right in the average. 2.2 in 1997, that, that's a big deal. Well, why is the velocity of money declining? It's declined from 2.2 in 97 to 1.49 now. What that means is people are hoarding cash and not spending it. Now, we've had a massive expansion in the money supply. Federal Reserve has been printing money like crazy, not literally, figuratively. It's all digital now. But the quantitative easing, uh, QE1, 2, 3, 4, um, all of that, it's just not changing the velocity. And that's one of the reasons we we uh, have low inflation and, in some cases, deflation. Now, why would people suddenly decide to hoard money instead of spend it? Well, there's a couple of reasons. One, a glooming economy after the financial crisis. People aren't feeling really good about the the economy. And a dramatic decrease in interest rates. This is, the, 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 you might as well hoard it because it, it doesn't matter what you invested in uh, from an interest rate standpoint, you're not getting anything. So, you couple all this with a low labor force participation, um, real disposable income's been declining or stagnant uh, at best. Um, all of these things give us an indication of why the economy is as it is. Why the Federal Reserve in their monetary policy are not getting the results that they would traditionally get. You increase the money supply, you should get some inflation. With inflation, you should get a higher velocity of money. People will be spending it rather than hoarding it. But that's just not happening in this case. So velocity of money, something very important to to uh, get over this. The government needs to get rid of some regulatory Overreach, get rid of federal spending. My goodness, it's way out of control. They need to reduce taxes on individuals and corporations and let the economy free up. Let the free market be the free market, and then velocity will start to expand. And only when velocity starts to expand will we see a real recovery and a real growth in our own economy. So is China part of the problem? Yes. Is China the whole problem? Absolutely not. Much more complex than that. Much more moving parts. The velocity of money is one of those parts. Speaking of velocity, when we come back, I'll uh, share with you some of the things I agree with in the State of the Union address, and we'll talk about a velocity feature that the Obama administration is getting behind. I'll talk about that next. An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. Back to An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. You know, I don't know about you, but... Uh, 
I got to tell you, I couldn't do it. I couldn't watch President Obama's State of the Union address this week. Uh, I had difficulty reading the transcript. Um, now, no big secret. I'm jaundiced. I understand that. Uh, the good news is it's his last one. Um, bad news is he's still got a year to go. And uh, executive orders are going to be be pouring out of the White House like we've never seen before, I believe. But in reading through the transcript, I did agree with a few things in his uh, State of the Union address. Um, most of it I didn't. I mean, it, it's clearly a uh, a uh, legacy-building kind of message, and, and uh, his undying supporters in Congress will will uh stand up and clap and cheer over any little little statement that uh that he makes that uh they feel they can get some political leverage out of but um he did declare or make the statement that he believes uh America is the strongest most robust economy in the world and of that I would agree I would agree. I think we're the best economy in the world. I think we're stronger than anybody else. But that's like saying you're the cleanest dirty shirt in the laundry. The rest of the world is really messed up bad economically. And uh, uh, we're not we're not running on all cylinders. Uh, we are running. We are growing. We're not in a recession at this point, uh, at least not formally. But... Uh, uh, I didn't agree with a lot of the statements. I don't agree with uh, the statements on climate change where he says essentially we're idiots for disagreeing because everybody knows climate change is man-made and we're causing it. Um, I don't like blanket statements uh, that way. Uh, of course, I don't agree with anything on on health care that he has to talk about or minimum wage or or any of that kind of stuff. So it was very difficult reading through that. And the the Kabuki Theater uh, attached to it was uh, equally uh, frustrating. You had a Syrian refugee um, sitting next to the First Lady. Uh, apparently this refugee hasn't killed anybody in a terrorist attack, so that proves we need to invite more of them in here. Um, he had an illegal alien who has since become legalized, went to college. Uh, probably you and I paid for that. Um, had the empty chair. Had the empty chair symbolizing the need for all of us to have our guns taken away. Um, I, uh, well, I, I'm assuming that anyway. Maybe the empty chair was uh, representing all the people killed by illegal aliens. You know, I hadn't thought about it. Maybe that's, maybe that's the... Uh, what the empty chair was was for. He had an Obamacare volunteer there, and and uh, uh, a lot of proponents for for gun control. No proponents for government control. I noticed that one. Um, so it, it was. I don't know. It, it was embarrassing to watch. Uh, although I didn't watch it, I did see clips of it. Um, Everybody was trying to be politically correct, and including Paul Ryan, and and they invited uh, um, uh, essentially uh, politically correct people to be their guests, whether it be Muslim or or whoever. Um, 
I, I, I just very disappointed in the uh, Kabuki theater of the State of the Union address. Now, one thing that, that came out afterwards uh, from the administration is uh, they're going to have some significant efforts to boost self-driving cars. Now, I assume the term boost self-driving cars is uh, uh, not a pun intended, uh, as when I grew up, if you boost a car, that means you stole it. But uh, they're talking about uh, $500 million going into the research for self-driving cars. And uh, I got to think, why would the government want self-driving cars? Uh, I don't mind driving. In fact, I actually enjoy driving my car. It's a lot of fun. Um, I drive every day, and I don't feel that's a uh, much of a burden. But uh, I got to thinking about that, and I thought, well, there's two reasons why the Obama administration wants to put $500 million into self-driving cars. One, uh, you got the crony capitalism thing going there. And uh, immediately, car companies started jumping on board and announcing big plans to shift into driving self-driving cars. And two, it allows the government to control one more piece of your life. Do you ever think a self-driving car that you'll be able to floor that and take it up to 65 or 70 miles an hour? Nope. It's going to stay at 55 in a 55 zone. It'll go 25 in a 25 zone and so on. So it allows them to control the car. Now, I don't think self-driving cars are anywhere near um, feasible in the near future. I think it's going to be, you know, 15 years, maybe 20 years before that happens. But it's one more statement that they want to control aspects of your life. They don't trust you to drive on your own and control your own vehicle. And uh, plus it gives them an opportunity to give taxpayer money to to their buddies. Up next, John Tamney, Senior Fellow in Economics at the Reason Foundation, editor of RealClearMarkets.com and a political economy editor at Forbes. We'll be joining me. You won't want to miss that. Gary Rathbun, an economy of one. An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. Joining me now is John Tamney. He's a senior fellow in economics at the Reason Foundation, editor of RealClearMarkets.com and political economy editor at Forbes. He's the author of the book, Popular Economics, What the Rolling Stones, Downtown Abbey, and LeBron James Can Teach You About Economics. One of my favorites. John, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me on tonight. Hey, I appreciate it. Uh, we had a great conversation. I think it was in July when we talked, when your book came out. And wanted to have you back. New book coming out. First of all, let's start with the news on everybody's mind that's causing the market to move around. What are you thinking of China here lately? Well, I think what's happening in China should should only scare us insofar as the government doesn't want it to happen. <laughs> Let's fix what, what, what are recessions? Because what's an economy? An economy is just a collection of individuals. And so 
years ago, Ben Affleck had a recession. He was making movies like Geely and Jersey Girl. Mm -hmm. So his recession was healthy. It forced him to get into the directing of films, and he won an Oscar for Argo. Chris Carter was cut by Buddy Ryan because he did not have his head right for the NFL. It forced him to get things straight, and he went on to have a Hall of Fame career. Recessions are very healthy. They're just a sign of the individuals with an economy fixing what they're doing wrong. And so a stock market correction is the same thing. It's just the market's way of rearranging who has access to capital. So it's very, very healthy. So in trying to delay what the markets are trying to do and trying to keep uh, to basically blunt the market's message, the Chinese government is making what's healthy much, much worse because it's delaying the arrival of buyers who must fill in for the sellers who want out, who want to rearrange where capital's going. So it's, it, this correction is, is healthy. Government's just making it much worse. Now, that being said, it's your thought from the stuff I've read of yours, including your book, Popular Economics, that the market, if it's a free market, it will set the, shall we say, fair price of what's anticipated in, in the future for that commodity or that service or, or whatever. Is, is that what you're saying? Is the Chinese market, and, and it's trickling into ours, but they're preventing the, the market from establishing the, the, the fair price of things? Exactly. And so that scares away investors. If you don't allow sellers, as a rule, you don't allow buyers in the market. Mm -hmm. Because how can buyers express their optimism unless sellers are allowed to express their pessimism? And so you need this to happen on occasion. Thank goodness that markets correct what, what's going wrong um, in the marketplace. Markets got rid of Blockbuster because it wasn't serving customers in the way that, that for instance, Netflix wanted to. Now markets constantly rid the economy of what we don't want. And so right. if you delay it, you have Friendster rather than Facebook. Well, does anyone want that? No. Now, does that work? And I just had this thought. I didn't write this question down. Does that work in the opposite way, John? I mean, can, can, the, can powers that be artificially depress a price like, like oil? I mean, is oil being uh, being interfered with so the free market isn't isn't working on oil or is that market the free market actually working on oil well oil is such a big market it'd be hard to say that government is in fact or that someone's manipulating its price let's face it there's always a buyer and a seller mm -hmm. but you bring up an excellent question why did we have, why was oil suddenly out of nowhere expensive in the early 2000s when it had been so cheap in the 80s and 90s? Well, it's fairly basic, and I talk about it in my book. This was government error. The Bush Treasury early in the Bush administration sought a devalued dollar. Presidents always get the dollar they want. Mm. Oil is priced in dollars, right. and so oil never became expensive. The dollar became cheap, and so. More recently, okay. last few years, the dollar strengthened quite a bit, mm -hmm. and it drove down the dollar price of oil. But if, you, if we had maintained a stable dollar all these years, which is the sole purpose of money, it's just a measure that helps us to exchange goods, right. oil right. would never have become expensive in the first place. Americans wouldn't have been paying nosebleed prices at the pump. And in addition to that, there never would have been all this malinvestment in the oil patch in the first place. It was a plentiful commodity that the world was providing very cheaply. 
then we decided to value the dollar. Big mistake. It was a government error all the way. So really, I mean, to 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 put it in uh, Midwestern farmer terms, if <laughs> if the price of corn was fifty dollars a bushel, we'd have a lot of people planting corn, and you, that's kind of the same that thing is with exactly oil. Exactly right. Okay. One hundred percent right. And now think about that. <laughs> there was just something in the Wall Street Journal the uh, last weekend that. Well over 50% of the oil sold in the world is basically brought to market by corrupt, thieving regimes. Look at, look at, look at who's big in oil. Iran, Venezuela, yep. Equatorial Guinea, some of the most backwards countries on earth. And so what does that tell you? Is it any surprise that the U.S. economy was particularly weak during a period when the, when the oil industry was booming? Well, no, because it signaled the U.S. economy lurching into the kind of work that the most backwards countries on Earth can ably do and away from the kind of work, think technology, that most countries in the world cannot do. It was basically the U.S. economy blasting to the past, doing the work of yesterday, and, of course, the economy weakened. The weak dollar drove us into industries that, again, Venezuela is good at, that Saudi Arabia is good at, that Russia is good at. That's an excellent way of looking at it. That being said, you know, I, I wanted to ask you a couple of questions about uh, the budget that was passed a few weeks ago. But part of that that overall bill was lifting the ban that uh, prevented our country from exporting uh, crude oil. Uh, now, I've talked to a couple economists like yourself about this. How important uh, do you feel being able to export crude? And by the way, today I think was the first tankers that that hauled our crude uh, out. Uh, how important is that? I don't think it's very important really at all. I mean, yeah, it's great. Look, uh, free trade bills in the United States should be one or two words or three words. You're mm. free to trade with anyone. <laughs> and so, good. Yeah, those who, who extract oil should be able to sell it to whomever they want. But my take is, and, and I want free markets, I want markets to dictate what happens. Mm-hmm. But what I believe is if the dollar had been stable all these years, oil would be very cheap. It'd be you know more like 10 to $20 a barrel. And the U.S., the most advanced economy on Earth, would be importing the vast majority of the oil that it consumes. And, you, and to me, I say thumbs up to that because, mm-hmm. let's face it, oil's easy. Again, Venezuela right. can do right. it. Iran can do it. That's great that we're exporting it, but a country as advanced as, advanced as ours should be importing prosaic goods. It shouldn't be exporting them. We should be exporting technology. That's what we're best at. Right, right. We're talking with John Tamney, editor of RealClearMarkets.com and author of Popular Economics with the Rolling Stones, Downtown Abbey, and LeBron James can teach you uh, about economics. Terrific book, by the way. Um, you know, in a couple minutes we have left, I wanted to touch base, you know, um, uh, some of the presidential candidates, uh, who shall remain nameless, uh, <laughs> talking about uh, a fair share tax, uh, increasing a capital gains tax, increasing estate taxes. Uh, this is pretty much the opposite of what our economy needs right now, wouldn't you say? The, the total opposite and one of the cruelest things you can do to the poor and middle class is raise estate taxes on the rich and raise mm-hmm. capital gains taxes on the rich. Because let's face it, how are companies and jobs created? The only way they are created is when people delay consumption and save and invest. Okay, so who's got the most money 
to save and invest. Right. Well, it's by definition the rich. Why does ESPN exist today? It nearly went under, and I, of course, talk about this in my book, but for a $10 million investment from the Getty Oil Trust, John Paul Getty left behind a lot of money to his heirs. They had so much money that they were willing to risk it on a high flyer like ESPN. And so we get the true growth. How is Silicon Valley created? It's created by Rockefellers, Vanderbilt. They had so much money to lose that they took risks on the riskiest companies of all. And so who gets to work at these places? Guys like you and me. And, 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 and So when you tax the rich, the people you hurt are the poor middle class because the rich have the money to invest in the companies of today and tomorrow. Well, and so it's a really cruel thing to do to the rest of us to, 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 to fleece the rich right now. Terrible for the economy. You know, one of the things that I always always try to point out on the show and, and think about that, that people think that the rich, quote unquote, is a static group of people. And the truth is rich people get poor every day and poor people get rich every day. That's a constantly fluid number of people. And, Absolutely. you know, people forget that. You know, the rich isn't this group of 20, 20 uh, mean, mean uh, guys sitting in a corner saying, how can we screw everybody and, and keep it for ourselves? They're constantly changing chairs. It's the, picture, the team picture of the rich, to your exact point, changes all the time. Compare a Forbes 400 from 1982 to, the, mm-hmm. to today, you won't recognize most of the names. Think about the year 2000. Mark Zuckerberg was a was a high school kid in, in the year 2000. <laughs> right. Well, today he's worth what 78 billion dollars. Something like that. Yeah. And, and what we also got to remember is think about what people who inher- I'm not going to inherit a lot of money, but think about those who inherit a lot of wealth. What they can do with it. Right. They've right. got so much money that they can risk it on the ESPNs and yes, the Facebooks and all these interesting companies that are going to employ us. That are right. going to change how we live and so when you tax away the wealth of the rich you tax away opportunities for the people who aren't rich for the people who have a dream and want to pursue it the only way they can do it is if someone will will delay consumption and offer up their savings the rich have the savings don't take it away because you're taking away opportunity from guys like you and me and the listeners now we we've got just a few seconds left you got a new book coming out in a couple months called who needs the fed how Taylor Swift, Uber, and robots can end the biggest bank in the world. Can you give us? Uh, can you give us a little preview? Yeah, it's just a book that points out that the Fed tries to set low rates of credit, cheap credit, but in the real market economy. Uh, we we have different prices for it all the time, and I use Taylor Swift as an, and Uber as an example to show the Fed tries to make credit easy by de- decreeing its price zero. What does Uber do? Uber decrees surge pricing to get buyers on the road, it, it, drivers on the road. It wants to make sure that our needs are served. And so it, in fact, raises the cost of accessing its drivers when we need the drivers most so that we have access to a ride when it's snowing, when it's raining, when maybe we've had too much to drink. The exact opposite of the Fed. It's a reminder that the Fed's model is totally backwards. Absolutely. I can't wait to uh, get my copy of that, John, and I hope that uh – we can uh, tap you on the shoulder again when that comes out and, and talk about it. Your book now, Popular Economics, I, I, I agree with uh, some of the reviews on it that you're kind of the, uh, 
the modern Henry Hazlitt uh, that wrote Economics in One Lessons. Terrific book, very readable. I gave it to all my employees to read and uh, really enjoy your work and appreciate you spending a little time with us today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. You're so kind to have me on, and, and any other time you'll take me, I'm glad to do it. It, it. It's nice to talk about these things. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you very much. We'll chat again soon. You be well. Yes, you too. Thank you so much. Thank you. We've been talking with John Tamney. He's the editor of RealClearMarkets.com and author of Popular Economics, what the Rolling Stones, Downtown Abbey, and LeBron James can teach you about economics. Up next, a miracle from the free market. Just what John was talking about. We'll talk about that next. An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. You know, one of the things John was talking about is essentially a country, uh, a people, if you will, needs to do what they can do best. Recently, this uh, last week, I read an article uh, that, that illustrated exactly that concept coming out of Israel. Some scientists in Israel have essentially created a miraculous cure. It's now in clinical trials in uh, New York City's Sloan Kettering Cancer Center that essentially cures prostate cancer. Now, being a guy and being a middle-aged guy, um, that's important to me. And what they've done is they've developed a procedure, I guess, called vascular targeted photodynamic therapy. And uh, it's pretty complex, but what they've done is they've uh, photosynthesized a drug and they inject that into the tumor and then they pump in light through fiber optics that causes the chlorophyll uh, in that drug to absorb light and process oxygen and essentially kill the tumor. Very non-invasive uh, so far, no side effects. You know, uh, prostate cancer has some, some very negative side effects if you have that done. And uh, it's a 20, 30-minute procedure. Takes about uh, 48 hours for the... Uh, tumor to completely die and you're done now that's amazing to me but what's amazing about it is it can only happen in a free market society that respects private property do you think this would have happened in many other cultures and countries around the world do you think it would have i'm not sure I'm not sure. And and furthermore, if it did happen in some countries that shall remain unnamed, do you think those people would be willing to share with the world? I'm not so sure. Not so sure. Will this happen in this country 
if Obamacare is allowed to go to its logical end? At what point are our researchers not incentivized to do this kind of research? At what point are people not trained to even think this way? When you think of Nazi Germany killing 6 million Jews during World War II, could we have had the cure for cancer 50, 60 years earlier? Who knows? And I'm not one to answer those questions. I look at it from the free market standpoint, from the private property, uh, respect of private property standpoint, and the fact that these scientists developed this in Israel, and it looks very promising. In fact, they're already looking at using the same application for breast cancer, lung cancer, pancreatic tumors. Um, It's just amazing. Too many of those cancers are are a death sentence. You get pancreatic cancer, you're you're not going to have a a good day. It's going to be very, very negative. But the point I want to make is, one, it has to be a free market to develop this kind of stuff. has to be a market that respects private property. has to be a culture that is willing to share with the world. Very exciting stuff. Very exciting. And now for some sad news, my friend. Um, This is truly devastating news. I've saved it till the end. Apparently, if we don't do something and do something soon, we could have a shortage of chocolate. Uh, I know. I know. It kind of takes the... uh, the uh, will to live out of me. I don't know about you, but uh, um, cocoa, as you know, is developed mainly in Guyana and the Ivory Coast. They they they, uh, they supply most of it, and uh, we've had some bad weather for several years. Got some disease in the plants. Got poor farming uh, methodologies, lack of fertilizer, that kind of stuff, and. Uh, the uh, cocoa crop is down about uh, 18% year over year. So uh, uh, we need to help these guys. I, you know, chocolate's one of those reasons to live. And if we don't have that, um, I'm not sure about tomorrow. We can deal with the economic issues and political issues surrounding this country. But uh, got to have chocolate, man. Got to have chocolate. Now, they are taking positive steps. I think they're going to be fine, so we'll be able to have our M&Ms and Oreos. But uh, something to keep in mind, my friends, could be critical. I want you to have a great day. Be an individual. Be self-reliant. Be an economy of one. I'm Gary Rathman. We'll see you next time. This is our country. The views expressed on this program do not necessarily reflect the views of this station. Listeners should consult their own financial advisors or conduct their own due diligence before making any financial decisions. Private Wealth Consultants is an SEC-registered investment advisor. 